This is Positive Parenting. Parenting expertise and advice from best-selling parenting author and national newspaper columnist, Mr. Dad, Armin Brat. Hey there, welcome to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brat. In their groundbreaking book, F Feelings, and you can fill in the rest of the F part, veteran psychiatrist Michael Bennett and his comedy writing daughter Sarah Bennett offered practical solutions for dealing with life's problems in a really funny, straightforward, and very unself-helpy-like book. Now they're bringing back their patented, blunt, and hilarious advice to talk about love and relationships. In this part of today's show, we're going to be talking with both Bennett's, and they're going to tell us about why we so often find ourselves in relationships that don't work. Most relationships that fail, it turns out, end because the two people were fundamentally wrong for each other in the first place. However, those incompatibilities were wrapped up around a cocoon of excitement, lust, charisma, and, well, feelings. The Bennetts use a brilliant and enduring collaborative technique. Dr. Bennett offers the approach he's perfected over decades of experience, and Sarah uses her professional-grade sense of humor to ground her dad's advice in real-life situations. The result is a book and an interview here today that might not help you find the person of your dreams, but it should provide you the roadmap to avoiding the kinds of nightmare relationships that probably caused you to buy books like this in the first place. That's what they say. And it all starts right after this. It only takes a minute to find out if you may have prediabetes. And you can do it at doihaveprediabetes.org. But you're probably not going to, are you? Kids, work, listening to the radio. You're busy, which is great because busy people can't get prediabetes. Oh my, I read that wrong. (laughs) They can. Should have worn my glasses. So visit doihaveprediabetes.org and take a short test because prediabetes can be reversed. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its pre-diabetes awareness partners. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott, and my guests for this part of today's show are Michael Bennett and Sarah Bennett, who are the co-authors of F Love, One Shrink Sensible Advice for Finding a Lasting Relationship. There's, you know, an asterisk in the F. You can figure out what that means yourself. Michael and Sarah, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having us. Thanks. So why are you so disrespectful of love? Because uh, love is a powerful feeling that uh, turns off your common sense. We think there's no more important decision you make than uh, who you get together with, particularly when it's going to turn into a partnership. And that love, while it may be an essential ingredient, is a very poor guide. There's nothing new about that. And a divorce is really horrible. So we uh, uh, we're trying to... Uh, offer reminders and pointers on common sense on the things you should do uh, in order to make sure that love doesn't sweep you away. Well, we also put, uh, you know, such bold words in the title because we're trying to set the tone, mainly that we are going to be a little provocative, but in order to make you laugh. You know, part of my father's approach with patients is making these statements with and without profanity when they say, you know, when he asks them why they're coming in, and he'll, they'll say, well, I want to be happy. 
still jokingly say, well, F being happy. You know, if someone can sort of laugh at what they came in or came in wanting or sure. what their ideas are, it, it shakes them out of their rut. It gets them to rethink their problems in a more constructive way. So we have nothing really in general against feelings. You can't, you know, they're uncontrollable. Uh, certainly sometimes they're pleasant. Right. But they can impair your decision-making in general and certainly when it comes to choosing a partner. Well, so why does this remind me of the you know the segment in Saturday Night Live that was called Lowered Expectations? I mean, how how is what you're talking about different than than that? It's not, it almost I, sounds like you're saying, well, no, you know, for happiness is overrated, love is overrated. Well, we'll go for something a little less complicated. It's well, it's not saying happiness is is overrated. It's happiness is uncontrollable. If you make it your goal to be happy. And then the first thing that happens is you walk out the door and a bird relieves itself on your head. <laughs> You've now failed at your goal by no fault of your own. And then if you blame yourself for not being happy, even though it was not your fault, you became unhappy. It was the bird's fault or the bird's choice to eat leftover chipotle. Then you're going to feel terrible for absolutely no reason. So it's not lowering your expectations. It's refining your expectations. You know, if you your expectation for a partner is someone who makes you feel good, then you're setting yourself up for failure because people can make you feel good all the time by their own choice or not. Uh, nobody feels good all the time unless they're on some very heavy drugs. Life just throws unpleasant things at you. That's the nature of existing. So your expectation shouldn't be to find someone you're going to love all the time and who's going to make you feel loved. Mm-hmm. If you want to find a real partner uh, who you're going to have a committed relationship with and maybe start a family with, you want to find someone who has the qualities that a good partner should have. And you can decide on what those qualities are based on your own experience or based on good relationships you've seen or the relationship of your parents, if that was what you, a successful relationship to you. You know, someone who's responsible and that they pay their bills on time and that they follow through on their promises. Sure. Um, that don't promise more than they can follow through on, which happens a lot too. Right. Um, that they treat you with respect, etc. Right. We're going to get into all that in some, some some more detail. But I like your idea about the finding somebody who can satisfy the kinds of things that you want. I think I remember having a conversation with my my twenty something daughter when when she was in high school, who was going through a, a breakup of some kind, and. We were talking about how this per- particular person she was interested in or had been interested in for a while was able to make her happy in certain areas but not others. And it, it seemed to me, I remember talking to her about this, it made sense to me at the time anyway, that, that you can't, whoever it is you're going to get involved with cannot possibly satisfy every need that you have and that you may need other people to make you happier in other areas. What do you think about that? Do, 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 is your, well, your partner supposed that. to satisfy you in every everything? <laughs> Only in certain things. <laughs> well, you know, it's uh, the, what we say sometimes as parents is, "I only want you should be happy." But we're, uh, <laughs> what we're saying is, forget about happiness. Uh, you're going to go through some hard times in life that just when you can't be happy and your partner can't be happy, are you going to go, uh, uh, help one another out through that time? Are you going to be strong and work well together? so that you can get through those hard times. Forget about happiness. You're going to go under fire. (laughs) But also, I mean, the example that I bring up all the time, because I hear about it all the time from my own friends, 
is they will be with a guy who is a good boyfriend in so many ways, but like, he doesn't want to talk. He's not chatty at the end of the day. He doesn't say, how was your day or what's going on at work? But if he demonstrates that he cares, if he does things that are caring, like he actually takes out the trash or doesn't have to be asked to walk the dog or clean the cat box, depending on your pet preference, you know, if his actions show that he cares, then being with someone who's not chatty is, and chattiness makes you happy, then that isn't that important. If you want to talk to someone, talk to the pet or go out with your friends or just get a haircut. Um, so in that way, it's figuring out what what's the more important happiness. You might really enjoy talking to someone, but that might not be that important in terms of a partnership that makes you happy in the long run. Do you think that there are differences between men and women as far as what makes them happy? Or what they I think what they're differences between everyone in terms of what makes them happy. Well, just let's be even even cruder and more generalizing about this thing. Um, I mean, because, you know, it's, I remember talking to, uh, I guess, I don't know who it was exactly, some sort of a therapist who was telling me that, you know, this old stereotype about women get involved with a guy that they hope they can change and they can't, and men get and try to get involved with a woman that they want to stay the same, and she ends up changing. You know, that that kind of thing is, is rather trite, but there are little elements of truth there, I think. I think that's really true. Uh, they're just that we want what we want. Uh, uh, guys, uh, we <laughs> we have our wants, and it's amazing how uh, women will look at a uh, a wedding and uh, just get totally obsessed and fascinated with it. Uh, whereas we guys, well, we know we know what we get fascinated with. But the big deal is that partnership really depends on, I don't know, five or six basic qualities that aren't that different from when you hire somebody or when you do a due diligence and want to go into business with somebody. And if those things aren't there, it's going to be a disaster. So we're really um, encouraging you to be pushy, selective, uh, do your research, uh, learn from your mistakes. Uh, usually when a relationship uh, uh, blows up in a big way, it isn't because somebody falls out of love. It's because they have a drug problem or a money problem mm. or a fidelity problem that's been there long before you came along. Well, and so what are those issues? Hard and done some research, it would have been okay. What are the factors you're talking about? Well, the, the biggies that usually come up all the time would be... Um, uh, honesty, reliability, keeping your promises, um, being able to manage money okay, or if you can't, accept help about it, um, and not being into drugs, uh, having some common values, uh, wanting to go in the same place in life, and uh, a certain level of, of decency. Um, you really can't scout those things. A good matchmaker yeah. should do that. So this is really about um, how to respect the matchmaking side and, and being your own matchmaker if you can't afford to get somebody to do it for you. You know, I just heard this thing on the radio a couple of days ago. There was a, a, a match site, an app, I think, in England that is based not on the kinds of things that you where you intersect with somebody you're looking for or what you like, but they have having hates in common. So it's like all the, you know, if you hate mushrooms and cilantro or something and you find somebody else who does it, you may be able to create a relationship more about that <laughs> than about anything else, which, which seems kind of entertaining. I don't know how, how long it'll last, but... 
Maybe they're onto something. <laughs> we do talk a bit in the book, though, uh, about the danger of finding someone that you just, uh, you know, who you bond with over the things that you don't like. I feel like that that maybe that was in the chapter of having you know the way we approach uh, our advice isn't by going through the positive qualities but by going through the qualities everyone thinks are positive and, and right. Uh, right breaking down what about them isn't so great and sometimes if you're with someone where your bond is negative in that way it can bring out the worst in you uh, and also make you lose track of other goals that include the outside world when it's become the two of you against the world. Because if you can't function well in a world filled with things you hate and you have a hate cheerleader at home, that <laughs> might not have That's such a positive fun. effect on the rest of your life. Yeah. Talking That's an with, extreme example, I realize. If you both just hate cilantro, then that's probably not going to affect your, your work and your relationship to your family, per se. But. Talking with Michael Bennett and Sarah Bennett, who are the co-authors of F. Love, One Shrink Sensible Advice for Finding Lasting Relationships. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we will talk some more. You're not wired to have a response to this sound. You're neutral to it. And you can hear it repeatedly without feeling anything. But when we introduce a new stimulus, save the food. We've achieved pulling a natural or inborn response from you. Save the food. Because 40% of all food in the U.S. never gets eaten. Save the food. Cook it, store it, share it. Just don't waste it. For tips and recipes, visit savethefood.com. Brought to you by NRDC and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. If you're just joining us, I'm Armin Brott, and I'm speaking with Michael Bennett and Sarah Bennett, who are the co-authors of F. Love, One Shrink, Sensible Advice for Finding Lasting Relationships. So I'm a single dad and spend a limited amount of time on some of these on online dating things. And I notice something that I'm sure most guys notice, and you talk about this in the book, that there's this obsession it seems to me with that women say in, in their profiles, I love to laugh. I'm looking for a guy with a sense of humor. And I mean, it's just it's as though one person is writing all of these profiles because it just keeps coming up over and over again. What is it with the, the sense of humor? I mean, everybody likes to laugh, right? I mean, yeah, I think, though, with women, it's it's the like to laugh. But a sense of humor is usually code for something else, um, because, you know, I, I hang out with a lot of comedians. Uh, male, mostly male, just because that's the way the ratio skewers, and uh, they, they aren't fighting off the ladies. It's not, you know, the one uh, trait that's definitely going to get you dates. I think when most women say they're looking for a sense of humor, they mean a guy that can laugh at himself, who doesn't take things too seriously, because people that take things very seriously tend to get angry very quickly, especially men. So a guy with a sense of humor is a guy who isn't going to be scary, uh, especially in the world of the Internet. You're meeting someone, you always think, oh, this guy could potentially be an axe murderer. If somebody can laugh, then uh, your chances of you know, being found off the side of a desert highway decrease a great deal. Uh, so I, that's what I usually think that's code for. It's not, I want the most hilarious guy on earth. It's, I want a guy who is not going to freak out. Um, at the slightest humiliation or foible, who's going to roll with the punches, who's going to take things in stride, and who doesn't turn into the Hulk uh, when everything's go wrong. You know, you talk about beauty and people who are interested in beauty, and I thought it was a really interesting section in there about 
if you are the kind of a person who is trying to kind of go overboard and not get pigeonholed into being superficial about beauty and you end up going after somebody who you really aren't physically attracted to, that that can be just as bad. Can you t- explain that a little bit, Michael? I'm not sure I can explain it. I've just uh, seen it, that um, if you, uh, that your feelings are your feelings, and if you really aren't attracted to somebody, it's not going to work. You may think they're wonderful and that it would be a very good match, but you can't make it happen. I've seen that happen to decent people. Uh, so it means that you really have to find a decent person, but you have to be lucky. And that got to another thing, which is sometimes you just can't be lucky. You can go through a long period and be open to dating, and uh, just because you're not a standard kind of person and you're not in the right place at the right time or at the right age, uh, you really don't find somebody. Uh, there's nobody around who would be good, and it's important uh not to feel like a failure. The most important thing is not to settle for something that really isn't good. Uh, to uh, respect yourself for being a, a single person who's open to choices but is not going to compromise on what you, what you know would be no good for you. You, know, you hear a lot about everybody wants sizzle or some sort of instant chemistry, and you talk about that as one of the F things. Uh, what what about that? I mean, do you do you have a, a rough rule of well, you should give it three dates and see how it how it develops? I mean, because sometimes you do get that instant sizzle, and sometimes you just don't. But you have a feeling that you might want to hang out with this person again at least once more. Well, I think a three date rule is is good when you think there might be something there, but you're also if you're doing internet dating and uh, um, and the person isn't really uh, a friend. If you spend too much time with anybody, you get burnt out pretty quickly. So I think you you try to be rigorous with yourself and not focus on whether you're hurting somebody else's feelings, um, but more whether you really think there's no chemistry there or not. And if there is a lot of chemistry there, that's when you really have to check yourself and say, is this one of, you know, especially at a certain age, you meet enough people that are just very charismatic and appealing. You know, they, they, they make inanimate objects feel charmed and dazzled. Um, and you have to be very careful not to be swept up in that and fall very hard for someone who might seem like they're clicking with you like crazy, but they just click with everything and everyone. Um, and it might be blinding you to a lot of red flags you would otherwise notice if, you know, you didn't have so many stars in your eyes. You know, as, as a shrink, uh, I know the people who come across with the most intense chemistry uh, are what we call borderline personality disorders. Hmm. People who experience intense emotion and are often very attractive and make their presence felt instantly, but who are who can also be very, very negative and unstable. So you have to be careful <laughs> when your instincts tell you that this is somebody who's fascinating. <laughs> Yeah. You know, I've got a couple, or used to anyway, I have one now, teenage daughters around the house. And because of that, I've got teenage girl magazines around the house, too. And I leaf through some of these things. And it seems to me, as maybe I'm just looking at it from a dad perspective, that there's a direct correlation between the way that these magazines pronounce somebody, usually men, to be hot, and how wealthy they are. And 
regardless of how, how good that they, ha- they really look. And I'm kind of wondering about if you are one of those people who is hot and wealthy and charismatic, how do you know whether people are actually interested in you as you as opposed to this collection of, of rather superficial traits? That's a tough question. I, I think it helps to go on the offensive, that if somebody is interested in you, you really look at their character and who their friends are whether they're they're solid and have lasting relationships, um, then there's a much better chance that they like you and aren't going to be uh, overly influenced by your wealth. It's no crime if they like the fact that you have money, but you're always looking for the same thing. Uh, also, if you have a wealth or you're very busy, you really need an independent partner. And and that's something uh, you look can look hard for in terms of whether they have interests, like to see their friends, enjoy their work, uh, so that whatever you aren't going to be too they aren't going to be too disappointed uh, when a lot of your life is taken up with other things. And it also requires you to do a little to put a little more effort into. Meeting people, perhaps, if that means going to places where you might normally socialize, but where vapid people are more likely to be found. You know, if if you go to places that are fabulous, surrounded by fabulous people, then you're probably going to find possible partners that only want you for your fabulousness. You know, it it requires casting a broader net uh, and looking outside the world that you are more accustomed to and familiar with. You know, we only have just a, a minute or two left, but I want to ask you about the chapter number seven, things to consider before deciding to get a divorce. And you talked at the very beginning about the kinds of characteristics you should be looking for, honesty, money management, that sort of thing. What are the things that you should be looking at before deciding to, to walk away? I think run? a lot of it is looking at what, you, what your family needs. Um, if you think the partnership is a positive thing for your kids uh, and very necessary, then you're prepared to make more sacrifices. Uh, The major message is not to be too reactive to anger or um, just, again, to how you feel, but to think hard about what you're trying to build and what divorce will do to that. It's not a crime to put up with a partner uh, who's somewhat difficult or offensive, whether the the partnership, at least for the time being, is is necessary and important to that. Sarah, are you going to add something? Uh, well, I have questions about divorce. I'm always like, meh, Dad, you take it. You're the person who's <laughs> actually been married. I don't know. Uh, but I think it also it, it plays into what I was saying before about partners that you know might not meet one of your needs, but show that they're worthwhile overall. If you are with someone and you keep running into the same conflict over and over again, and you've done this evaluation, like my dad was saying, of, you know, does this problem over, is this problem worse than the benefits that this person adds? You know, can I forgive this in light of the good things that he or she does? If you can't forgive that one constant bad habit or or if you you know you find yourself it doesn't the the thing that they do wrong can't um be 
yeah, sorry. It's hard to articulate when a day or so ago I had a pretty bad stomach bug, so I'm still getting my brain together. <laughs> but basically, uh, if you this person has done things that can't be forgiven in light of other good things they do or what they contribute as a parent, um, then what you need to do going forward, you obviously then that's divorce. But it is it's still not personal. It's still not out of anger, because um, what we always try and do is evaluate things based on general need, not, you know, personal injury. So even then when we, if you go through the evaluation that we give and you see, okay, then I see separation as being good choice, it's not a choice made out of rage. And that will be more beneficial to both parties in the future. Michael Bennett and Sarah Bennett are the co-authors of F. Love, One Shrink Sensible Advice for Finding a Lasting Relationship. Thank you both very much for being with us. Great to have you. Thanks so much. Thank you. With very good questions. It may be hard to believe, but people just like you are already saving money. FeedThePig.org makes it easy. Their simple savings plan teaches you how to start saving without going overboard. So you don't need to sell all your belongings and live in a commune. These dungarees belong to all of us now, Tom. You don't need to get a second job as a stuntman. We need a new stuntman! You just need FeedThePig.org. Don't get left behind. Get tips and tools at FeedThePig.org. Brought to you by the American Institute of CPAs and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott. It's time for an Ask Mr. Dad segment. And this week we've got a question that I get different versions of from moms and dads. Dear Mr. Dad, my husband and I have a two-year-old daughter and we've both been very involved in raising her. But recently she started pushing him away and demanding that I do everything. She won't let him read her bedtime stories, take her to the park, feed her, get her dressed, or anything else. All things that he's always done, and until a few weeks ago, she had no complaints about. This is quite frustrating for two reasons. First, I see how much it hurts my husband and I can't seem to help him. Second, our daughter's constant demands mean I don't get any downtime. Why is she acting this way, and what can we do to help our daughter and ourselves get through this annoying phase? Just about every parent goes through this at some point, usually with a child around your daughter's age. But just because it's common doesn't make it any less painful for the parent who's on the outs or less exhausting for the parent who can do no wrong. The good news is that your daughter will almost surely grow out of this phase. In the meantime, though, it's great that you're concerned about your husband and what he's feeling. Your biggest task is going to be to keep him from giving in to the very real temptation to back away, to remove himself from situations where his daughter is likely to reject him. The short answer to your question about why your daughter is behaving this way is because she can. At two, she's still pretty convinced that she's the center of the universe and she enjoys throwing her weight around. I'm betting that in addition to pushing daddy away and demanding that you do everything, she's also pushing away certain foods or books or clothes and demanding others. Pretty soon, though, she'll start confronting the harsh reality that she actually has very little control over what happens in her life. In the meantime, there are a few things you can do to ease your husband's and your own pain. First, with your husband there, talk to your daughter about feelings. 
Toddlers instinctively want to help others, and they're very aware that certain things can make them feel happy or sad. But do this in small doses. It's okay to tell your daughter that daddy is feeling sad and needs a hug. It's not okay to tell her that she's a bad person. Next, try to increase the number of activities you do together. And be sure your daughter notices that daddy's there too. Make up a reason to leave the room for a few minutes, leaving dad and daughter together. Whenever he's not around, talk about him. Tell your daughter that you miss him and that you're excited about seeing him later. If a problem comes up, say that you need to get something from a high shelf or something needs to be fixed. Tell her that daddy is really good at those things. Your goal is to get your daughter to see her dad as someone who can help her get what she wants and to encourage her to look forward to being with him. Fortunately or unfortunately, depending on how you look at it, the tide will eventually turn and your daughter will glue herself to her dad and push you away. So you might want to bookmark this segment and have your husband take a listen to it when it's his turn to be the one who can do no wrong. If you've got a suggestion for us here at Positive Parenting, please do send it. You can drop us a line through our website, MrDad.com. We'll be back next week with a whole brand new show for you. And hey, but don't go anywhere quite yet because, as you know, there's a lot more of this show coming right up. I'm Paul George of the Indiana Pacers. When I was six, my days were spent playing basketball. When I was six, my dream was to make it to the NBA. When I was six, my mom had a stroke. So I want you to learn to spot a stroke fast. F-A-S-T. F, face drooping. A, arm weakness. S, speech difficulty. T, time to call 911. I'm Paul George. Spot a stroke fast. Visit strokeassociation.org. Brought to you by the American Stroke Association and the Ad Council. Now, get ready for more positive parenting with Armin Brott from the MrDad.com radio network. This is the second part of today's Positive Parenting Show. I'm Armin Brott. Thanks for sticking with us. For parents, discovering that their teen cuts is terrifying. Why is their child doing something so macabre? Is it somehow their fault as parents? How can they talk about it without making the problem worse? It's really difficult for us to understand, but according to psychologist and Harvard Medical School professor Michael Hollander, hurting themselves makes some kids feel better. And while the majority are actually not contemplating suicide, they absolutely need help from qualified professionals and from their parents. In this part of today's show, we're going to be talking with Michael Hollander, who, in addition to everything else, is also a leading expert on what's called dialectical behavioral therapy, DBT, which is the most effective treatment approach for cutting. We're going to be talking about what DBT is and what cutting is, and especially some practical strategies for talking to teens about self-injury without making it worse, and ways to teach them skills to cope with extreme emotions in healthier ways. And of course, we'll also talk about how you can find the right therapist and reduce stress for the whole family. Ultimately, we're going to end up with a deeper understanding of the causes of self-injury and, of course, what we can do about it. I'm Armin Brunt. We'll start talking about how we can help and understand teens who cut when Positive Parenting continues right after this. 
This message is for all of you sitting in the passenger seat, and apologies if it gets a little uncomfortable, but how does it feel to be at the mercy of someone who thinks a random text is more important than your life? Someone who takes their eyes off the road while speeding along in a three-ton hunk of steel. Freaky, right? Well, why not just ask them to stop? Or better yet, volunteer to text for them. It might be a little awkward, but believe me, you'll live. Learn more at StopTextStopRex.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott, and my guest for this part of today's show is Michael Hollander, who's the author of Helping Teens Who Cut, Using DBT Skills to End Self-Injury. Michael, thanks for joining us. Oh, you're very welcome. So I think we need to start off with DBT skills and what that is exactly. And I think you'll, you'll also hopefully get into a little bit of a definition of what cutting is, and, uh, but we'll sure. talk about that in more detail. Sure. So uh, DBT stands for Dialectical Behavior Therapy, which is a a cognitive behavioral treatment that was developed um, in the late 80s and early 90s and now really is the gold standard uh, for treating people who, uh, among other uh, problems, uh, use uh, self-injury. It is a a treatment that is uh, based both on uh, change strategies, that is when we can change something, we're going to try to change it, and also being able to uh, use acceptance strategies, that is there are things in this world, problems that we have for uh, that we don't actually have solutions to uh, right then and there, and we have to be able to tolerate our distress when uh, we can't solve the problem right away. And that's the strategies that you're teaching kids who are dealing with this issue of cutting. That's exactly right. Okay. So let's talk a little bit about, then going backwards, about cutting, where it, where it comes from, why it is that kids have settled on that particular thing. Uh, I mean, is it, is it something that they, they know somebody else who's done it? Because well, I'm wondering, you know, what, like yeah. the first kid. How do you kid, find out about this? Well, like, where, how did the first child decide to do that? Well, it, it's hard to know how the first child decided to uh, to do that. Um, self-injury has been around for thousands of years, um, and so it is not a new phenomena, although we believe that it is uh, self-injury among adolescents is increasing. Uh, so there was a small study done maybe 10 years ago trying to figure out how kids came to this, and about 50% of the kids reported they had no idea how they came to it, and about 50% of the kids said either they knew someone, read about it, saw it in a movie, um, uh, discovered it, came across it on, on, the, on the Internet. Wow. Uh, yeah. So it's, it's very much out there. There probably are very few high school students who don't know of someone who has used self-injury uh, at least once in their in their lives. Uh, the the really the the astounding thing about self injury is that if you are really really emotionally spun up, jumping out of your skin, and you cut yourself, um, you will in all likelihood feel immediately better. 
that is you'll get calmed down right away. So it's a very effective uh, behavior that um, is rooted in uh, our biology. Uh, we're not exactly sure why it works. There are huh. a number of uh, theories about it, but we are, uh, from what we can tell from biologic markers, it actually calms you down. It's not... Um, not the kids aren't making it up when they say yeah. when I do it I, I I feel better after I do it because they do. You know it's it's interesting. I just all of a sudden I'm thinking of doctors in quotes from hundreds of years ago who used bloodletting as a cure for certain mm-hmm. kinds of things, and it it kind of makes you wonder whether there's something as you said f- physiological there that actually letting some blood out does somehow help. Something. Yeah. Yeah, it, it does seem that uh, the way we're hardwired that uh, uh, tissue damage can bring with it um, a sense of uh, calmness right right afterwards. But it's also true, I think, equally true that there are some just psychological aspects of self-injury, uh, kids who feel they don't deserve things, kids who feel they need to be punished uh, can reach for self-injury. Uh, as a way of uh, gratifying those uh, beliefs about themselves. So it both works psychologically and it works uh, physiologically. And uh, they probably go uh, together um, most of the time. Is it something that is confined to the teenage years or the tween years, or are there adults who do this as well? There are certainly lots of adults who self in, who self injure. Most of uh, self injures start in the teen years, and, and actually have some evidence that uh, kids are starting younger uh, to do this. And like how <clears throat> young? How young? Oh, uh, nine or ten, Ooh. even. Yeah, um, but the majority of kids start in uh, early to mid adolescence. There is some evidence that it lasts on average about six years, whether you get treatment for it or not. Um, but in, in clinical practice, it's not uncommon to find someone who started self-injuring in their teens and has continued uh, through their early uh, adulthood into middle age. Is there a particular psychological profile of a child who does this? Uh, you're going to find uh, children who have a great deal of trouble managing their emotions. So and uh, that is, they become easily emotionally dysregulated. Most often, it's the kids who, once an emotion shows up, the emotion takes over, and uh, they're at they're at the sway of their emotion. There is another another group of kids who are also emotionally dysregulated, who have really suppress their emotions and feel mostly numb uh, and empty. And it turns out that for that group of kids, uh, cutting themselves actually makes them feel more alive again and, and back in the back in the present. You know, I want to go back a little bit to this the bloodletting thing. I'm just my <laughs> there, there's this condition I remember reading about called uh, hemochromatosis, where you have too many red blood cells. And my my father actually has something that's kind of like that, and he would feel really great after he gave blood. And yeah. I'm kind of wondering, I mean, it, it, it almost sounds as though this is a, a medical problem instead of a, a therapy problem. 
How so a medical problem? I mean, a medical problem that there, you know, if, if it's a condition, if there's some enzyme or something that's going on well, in it, the blood, it, maybe there's a medication yeah. for it instead of something We don't else. have any, currently we don't have any medications for it. There have been uh, some tries with some um, uh, opioid, opioid antagonists like naltrexone, uh, which are, has been used, say, in the treatment of uh, alcoholism or opiate use, in which you don't get the relief uh, or the, the high from the from the from the drug. Uh, there was a, there's one or two studies that seem to indicate that that was useful in all of the trials that I've had experience with using uh, something like that. It actually hasn't uh, worked. And it may turn out that this is a universal phenomenon, uh, that, uh, that is, anybody who would feel better after they cut themselves um, after being in this, under the sway of uh, intense emotions. So it, it, it doesn't the, – the jury's still out whether this is some sort of uh, biologic uh, deficiency or this is just the way uh, human beings are – Hardwired. Right, whether there's like some sort of blood marker or some a yeah, test that you can take or a, a vaccine at some point. Yeah, we have no evidence huh. um, uh, uh, about that. All right, and so you're saying that they're starting younger. Yeah. Is there any explanation for why that is? Well, it seems like everything's starting younger. <laughs> so, well, puberty, uh, I guess, and maybe it does it come yeah. along with that. Yeah, some some of that, and I think that. Uh, that you're finding um, kids get more plugged into social media. And it's it's always been the case that younger kids like to emulate older kids. And so I think there is a, a, probably an explanation hidden in there somewhere. And are there other types of self-injury that don't involve a cut that, yeah. that are common? Uh, th- that the largest uh, percentage of people who self-injure uh, cut themselves, but there are, there are people who uh, burn themselves. There are people who uh, break bones. Uh, uh, there are any number of, of ways that uh, you can um, bring the the relief on from from self injury. And do you we, think we actually call it non suicidal self injury, which, okay. which is that. The person is uh, deliberately hurting themselves, but they have no intention to die. Do you think that things like alcoholism and drug addiction are just manifestations or more adult manifestations of the same thing? And people who are doing that are knowing that they're doing something that's not good for them. Um, I think that the uh, common thread there has to do with avoidance. Uh, avoidance of emotional experiencing, avoidance of what's going on in your life. So certainly self, self-injury, self uh, like a number of forms of substance abuse, is, is escape behavior. I'm talking with Michael Hollander, who's the author of Helping Teens Who Cut Using DBT Skills to End Self-Injury. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to keep talking to Michael. I'm in almost every school bus in classroom. You see me around the neighborhood, and you tell me that I'm a pretty good kid. Well, I'm one out of every five children in America, and I'm struggling with hunger. Please visit feedingamerica.org today and find your local food bank for ways to help. Every dollar you donate helps provide eight meals for kids like me. We are Feeding America. 
brought to you by Feeding America and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott. If you're just joining us, I'm talking with Michael Hollander, who's the author of Helping Teens Who Cut, Using DBT Skills to End Self-Injury. So I wanted to just go to the next level here. So how can parents have any sort of clue that this is going on? Because I know the kids are going to a great extent to cover it up. They're wearing baggier clothes or they're just not talking about things. Or, you know, what are some red flags here? Uh, some red flags. Uh, if your kid, if you're, if you're worried about your kid's emotional state, and uh, you're living in a warm climate, and all they're doing is wearing long sleeve shirts and long sleeve pants, that's a, a first level clue. I, I, I would encourage parents not to land too heavily on why are you, you know, wear, wearing uh, long sleeve sh- shirt in, in the in the warm weather. But it is something that uh, parents uh, should think about. If they find broken razors, which often is the case uh, in the house, you know, shape, uh, blades that have been broken broken apart, uh, oftentimes there are bloody tissues that are left around. Um, but it, it is um, often the case that parents uh, don't find out until um, several weeks or even months uh, after someone starts to self-injure. Uh, pediatricians often are the first to, to, to get it, or a kid starts talking with another kid about self-injury, and that uh, kid goes to a parent or somebody at the school, and, and, and the school finds out. So um, it, uh, parents need to be vigilant uh, to some degree, uh, and uh, in all likelihood, eventually uh, they will they will find out. Are there particular excuse me? Are there particular places on the body that kids tend to do this? I mean, I know in manifestations in or representations in movies, it seems to always be the the forearm. But are yeah. there other places that yeah, that they kid, do this? kids cut on their on their forearms? They cut on their shoulders. If uh, they sometimes when kids really want to hide things, they'll cut on the bottoms of their feet. Uh, they'll cut on the inside of their thighs, so that really, uh, except in the most scant and when they're most scantily clad, uh, no one is going to to see it. But the the uh, most prominent uh, place is on the arms. All right, so let's talk about DBT and how this all fits in here, because I think that a lot of parents would if they discover that this is going on, the first reaction might be, are you out of your mind? What are you, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? Are you crazy yeah. kind of a thing, which is obviously the exact wrong approach, but it comes from a good place. It, yeah, it's it certainly um, like actually a quite an understandable and natural response. But I think that the, 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 the response needs to be, after you get over that part, is, Clearly, you're suffering, uh, and your emotions are getting the best of you, and we need to get you some help to help you get your emotions back in in check. Uh, What we do know about the the kids who self-injure is that they are, by and large, 
uh, on the more sensitive end of things. That is, they feel their feelings more deeply than most people. Uh, Their uh, emotional responses are usually immediate, even though at times you may not be able to actually see it, but they usually feel things powerfully and immediately, and that once their emotions uh, rise, it actually takes them longer to get uh, down to baseline than non-self-injurers. We also know that uh, as a group, self-injurers are uh, better able to endure physical pain uh, than non-self-injurers. So I guess they have to, yeah. Yeah, yeah, although, and it's interesting because about 40% of self-injurers and actually, in my own experience, it's been higher than that, but uh, about 40% of self-injurers report no experience of pain at the time of self-injury. Huh. That's just fascinating. Now, are, when you have the approach and you're, you're saying what you're saying to say, something like your emotions are getting the best of you, we need to get you some help, do they recognize that they have a problem? Uh, most, yes, even though they may not acknowledge that right away. Uh, most kids know that there is a problem with, with self-injuring. Uh, they oftentimes, as adolescents are prone to do, can get defensive and oppositional and say things that's like, it's my body, it doesn't, it's not hurting anyone, you know, I can do what I, what I, what I want. Um, but very few kids are sort of unambivalent about the behavior, uh, in part because it, they know it's going to have consequences, you know, scars, and um, there are, while you can find a group of kids who, like, your, like yourself, may be self-injuring, and you can sort of have a, a, a friend cohort, um, most of the time self-injury gets, uh, eventually gets kids more alienated from mainstream friendships. Why would that be? Because other kids think it's kind of weird. Makes or sense. that you've got a problem. Yeah. Nobody wants to hang out with kids who have problems, I guess. Especially when it's manifested that uh, that way. Um, and oftentimes uh, uh, friendships groups try to be helpful and supportive, but if the person isn't really getting the right kind of treatment or really hasn't turned their mind to stopping, uh, friends get burnt out. All right, so help, help us with, the, as parents how we can start using some of these DBT techniques? Well, for, for the most part, for parents, unfortunately, it's around two things. One is learning how to validate the kid's emotional experience, which means speaking to how uh, awful it must be to be so emotionally overwhelmed. Uh, and so you can validate the child's emotional experience without validating the legitimacy of the behavior. Um, so you, because basically uh, self-injury is a problem-solving strategy uh, and not a particularly, and a pretty good one in the short run, but actually doesn't change or solve your life problems. But for the most part, I think, so, so getting parents to get much better at, at learning how to validate and validate without jumping right to problem solving. Like, I understand you're really suffering, but there are things we have to do is not validating. So it's just parents need to stay with the uh, validating the emotions and then slowly move to 
let's get some problem solving in in here. The other skill that parents really need to use is their is distress tolerance for themselves because coming a, a, finding out that your kid is self-injuring sets most parents uh, on edge, to say the least. And then when we're emotionally revved up as parents, uh, we're more prone to make parenting mistakes. And so it's the first thing we got to do is get ourselves regulated and then from a more regulated place come up with some strategies about how we're going to be helpful to to our 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 kid um i can tell you there are you know there are there are a few things that are helpful to to parents uh, that they can do and a whole lot of stuff that parents can do that make the situation worse uh so it's it, it oftentimes with parents it's uh, how not to make the situation worse you know we only have just a, a couple of minutes left um, give us a little bit of a of a sense. I mean, I, I, ultimately, it seems like it's going to come down to the best approach is going to be for parents to get therapy for their kids. Yes. To, so how do and you go about doing tr- that? How do you go about doing that? Well, how do you find uh, the right person? Well, you know, it, that, it's so variable because it, de- it depends on where you live. If you live in a large metropolitan area, it's it's probably easier to find a, a DBT therapist or a therapist who feels they have a competence in uh, treating treating self injury. Um, so the questions that parents need to ask uh, and try to find out are: Is this person trained in dialectical behavior therapy? There is a website that's been developed now uh, on the behavioral tech uh, website, dbsbehavioraltech.org, that lists everyone who's been trained. And then there is also uh, a website for people who have been certified, which is a, a brand new process. But it's not, it's not essential that the person be a DBT therapist. What is essential is that they have some experience in treating adolescents who self-injure and can uh, articulate to the parents what their treatment approach is um, and whether they're actually targeting self-injury because there are some therapists um, who kind of take the position, well, this, since this is not life-threatening, we'll solve all the other problems that the kid has and self-injury will um, go away on its own. And the fact of the matter is, is that's probably true, but it takes a whole lot longer and there's a whole lot more suffering yeah. Uh, that that goes that goes on. Michael Hollander is the author of Helping Teens Who Cut Using DBT Skills to End Self-Injury. Michael, thanks for joining us. It's really Hey, you're very welcome. Thanks for listening to Positive Parenting. You can get more information on today's show and what we're working on in the weeks ahead at MrDad.com. While you're there, visit the MrDad.com gift shop with everything you need to help you become the dad or mom you want to be. Positive Parenting is a production of the MrDad.com radio network. Now, go be a great parent.